In the spirit of reconciliation, AMSA acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello and welcome to the Australian Federal Students Association's podcast, Anfield, where we talk about the things you don't learn in med school. Today, I had the pleasure of chatting to Travis Lyons. For those of you who have not yet been subject to a policy induction, Travis is our lovely National Policy Officer. This episode is part of a two-episode mini-series which aims to initiate the uninitiated into all things answer. If you're already well endowed with AMSA knowledge, there's definitely still something here for you. Highlights of the episode include some armchair epidemiology and an in-depth dumpling discussion. Hi Trav, thanks for joining me today. I thought we'd start off with just a couple of quick fire questions, uh, especially since you're in Melbourne. The first one I've got for you is, how much is your weekly Uber Eats expenditure? Look, that's commercial incompetence. Um, I, I, I have certainly adapting to the second lockdown, there was a little bit of, there was a pretty significant outlay on on Uber Eats, but uh, I've been cooking a little bit more the last week. So I only actually bought I only actually bought meals twice in the last week. So I'm very that's my biggest point of pride this entire year, actually. So I'm glad you asked that. That's uh, an extremely admirable effort. <laughs> um, now, just to bring your pride back down to baseline, uh, yep. do you mind revealing to everyone listening uh, how many pairs of RMs you have and how many Cobras you have? I have two pairs of RMs, uh, one brown and one black. Only two. Only two. Yep. I'm I'm not made of my a minimalist. Um, and you know, Akubras are expensive as well. And of them, I only have two, but I've got a third, which is a Stetson, uh, that I bought in uh, bought in the US as a very expensive and elaborate joke. How did that joke go? <laughs> Uh, look, I got a laugh. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody else was laughing with me, but that's okay. No, that's what matters. Now, uh, we still have three, no, four rapid-fire questions to go, and I thought we'd jump into policy after that. But I have to bring up the point, why have we not seen an RM policy where every medical student is provided with a pair of RMs? How has that not happened yet? Have you failed us as national policy officer because of this? Look, as you well know, um, it's, it's something that I discuss with all my policy authors. Uh, the example policy that we discussed in our induction is the medical student happiness policy. And I think that really hinges on the provision of RMs to all medical students. Suffice to say that the policy officer doesn't work in a bubble. Um, they're very much constrained by the organisation. And I look, I don't want to start any beef with, with anyone in the organisation, but certainly my my superiors have, have really let us down with this and, and created a bit of a stone wall on this issue. I've been pushing it really hard, but look, insofar as it hasn't happened, yes, I have failed, but I'd, I'd really attribute that failure to uh, to the likes of, of Dan and Nemo. We, we love the hospital pass. Very good. Um, so next question for you. Uh, what's your favorite seafood? If you like seafood. Uh, oh, look, just say, look, I'm a, I'm a simple man. I love a prawn. Just, just a plain prawn? Oh, you know, you can put a bit of salt. Single in. prawn. Just, just a single prawn. Yeah, you don't want to indulge. And, you know, of course, gout is always a really present risk. And so if I'm going to have a prawn, it's a single prawn, no sauce, basically plucked straight out of the ocean, shell on, eat that up. 
Gad is uh, actually one of my favorite conditions uh, because one of my mates, we were having beers the other day and he was telling me about this period of three months where he was um, a massive alco and he was also really trying to put on weight at the gym. And because he was also broke, he decided the best way to do that was just to just consume inordinate amounts of sardines. Um, and he was pretty sure he gave himself gout. We last week on our wards had two people with exactly the same name, let's call them Kevin, who had gout in exactly the same joint and they were basically exactly the same person. So I think, look, I'm not sure what your mate's name is, but I, I, I think he, if his name's Kevin, he's, he's joined that illustrious crew. <laughs> the really uh, sought after club, the gout club. <laughs> what is your favorite takeaway dish? And do you have a sort of genre of takeaway dishes you prefer? Oh, geez, this is hard hitting. Uh, Look, I, I, I love Chinese food. Um, there's a, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky, obviously down in Melbourne, we're only allowed out of our house once a day and within a five kilometer radius, but there's a, a Chinese restaurant uh, just down the road from me that does a really nice um, tarsil with with noodles and that that goes down all right. So that's probably my, that's my go-to at the moment, but just anything in that general genre pleases me enormously. So that actually uh, links on very well to our final uh, quickfire question. Uh, Nemo and I were talking at length yesterday about dumplings, and it led me to going out because Queenslander, uh, all is all is well in this state. That hurt. We went out for dumplings last night. Shaolong Bao, I was very impressed. Um, what is your favorite dumpling type, Travis? Okay, Shaolong Bao goes really nice um you know that, that that is that is probably the peak of dumplings a bit hard to handle sometimes but that's definitely up there i think though i think that yum char is underrated oh, okay i think that the the that you can get at yum char which is i mean they are dumplings i i think probably just have the um probably just have the the shallow bowl covered so there's one called uh, it's a fried prawn dumpling, but it's fried in a different kind of batter than you'd get in a in a in most Chinese restaurants that you can get at Yum Cha. That's that's my hot tip. Um, and I look, I'd encourage any listeners to put down the podcast and head out to Yum Cha right now and get onto one of those. It'll change your life. Absolutely, and I, I think it is important as medical students to have priorities. And I would definitely back that. I encourage everyone to uh, turn off the podcast immediately, head straight to your nearest Yum Cha. Um, it's about the the priorities, the important stuff. You've got your you've got your byline there, <laughs> and that's it. Uh, thanks for joining us today for the podcast. Uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, we, we we've got a quota to hit. I've kind of messed up my order of questions because I was supposed to then ask. Um, now say that in Spanish and Mandarin, um, <laughs> because Nemo told me that you speak both Mandarin and Spanish. Nemo Nemo flatters me. I've I've been known to to dabble in Spanish and and. Could probably do a, a reasonable job of that. My Mandarin, uh, which I know many medical students uh, actually speak, it probably isn't up to standard. For the sake of uh, humour, and I know there was a humour policy at, at council too, would you be able to summarise the uh, medical student happiness policy in both Spanish and Mandarin? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I'm sacre que la felicidad de medicina es muy importante y por eso AMSA pide al gobierno 
comprar los RMs para todos los estudiantes <laughs> que en Australia. Incredible. And in Mandarin, all I would say is uh, What does that one mean? Sorry. <laughs> so how did you come to pick up um, Mandarin and Spanish? So I did Spanish. So at, during our undergrad at Unimel, we have to do a, a breadth subject or a series of breadth subjects, which are subjects that are basically outside our field of study. And so I studied Spanish for a couple of years there and, and really enjoyed it. <laughs> Suffice to say that Spanish was probably the reason that I ended up getting into med from the undergrad. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for Brett Finney Melb. Um, Mandarin though was something that I started in medical school and I went to sort of night classes for Mandarin because I was keen to pick up another language. Um, and I actually was, I had a run in with someone in a restaurant uh, whilst I was eating some Chanel Bar. I actually uh, had some friends out at a restaurant and this, this man yelled at us in Mandarin and none of my friends who spoke Mandarin would, would, sort of have a crack back so I thought look I've got to I've got to learn it myself and get out there and this is what you've been training for this is what I've been training for I, I you know suffice to say it hasn't turned out as I'd hoped I've never returned and met my enemy uh but <laughs> after a few more years I think I'll be able to I'll be able to take him one day one day one day <laughs> all right so um one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast was so I could shoot this off to a few of my first year mates so they would actually understand a bit more about AMSA, a bit more than just what the acronym stands for. And I think the question of what the hell is an AMSA comes up a good amount. And I figured it would be good uh, to get a nice lay explanation outline of AMSA. I'm honestly still not sure how everything happens and I'm running the podcast. <laughs> so as let's start with uh, what you do as a national policy officer. So as... Our NAF little statement this year has been that policy is the beating heart of AMSA's advocacy, which strikes fear into the hearts of everyone. Um, but basically what my role is, is to make sure that AMSA has policy. So policy are documents that effectively codify what medical students believe on certain issues. And so they really constitute the voice of medical students. And my job is to make sure that those policies are written and updated and that the policy base serves medical students well, but also to make sure that people within AMSA are using those policies effectively. So I'll often provide advice to people about what the policy means and how to use it, um, and also provide advice about how we can reshape the policy base to suit the advocacy goals of AMSA, and more particularly the advocacy goals of Australian medical students. In amongst all of that are some other sort of fun things as well, like I get to do some uh, training and policy for AMSA reps and for various people in AMSA, and I, you know, occasionally get to to speak at things about policy and be a little bit highfalutin about it. But um, yeah, that's the that, that's basically the crux of the job to make sure that there is policy and that policy is well written. Yeah, an important job for sure. So with the whole AMSA policy thing, I get that you know you you make policy and it gets advocated for on behalf of medical students. How does it actually go? I feel like it's a of a difficult process to understand, especially for someone like me with a bit of a small brain. The the humility that you're that you're bringing to this podcast is is really off the scale, Aiden. As one of our <laughs> one of our brightest new policy authors, um, basically, policy policy. Okay, so the the way that policy is comes into fruition is we recruit teams from around the country, people such as yourself that will 
make part of a team of about seven people who will either review an old policy or write a new policy. The way that we determine which policies get reviewed and which get written anew is actually with AMSA Council. So we, I suggest a list to them after taking advice from people all across AMSA. And then AMSA Council, which is the national representative body of AMSA, where your AMSA reps go and go and have three days of fun, they tell us what policies to be written. Once we've got our teams, they spend some time writing those policies. They send those policies out to medical students all across the country for some feedback. And then finally, those policies go to council where they are voted on. And you know, there's a bit of debate and a little bit of change to the policy, but ultimately those policies are either voted for or against by the AMSA reps. Once the policy exists, that then goes into the hands of all the people across AMSA who do advocacy. And so something that we've really recognised this year is that even people off the advocacy team, which has been uh, dissolved since, actually do advocacy in AMSA. So there's probably about 50 or 60 people who have an advocacy role within AMSA, and their job is to, to use policy to inform how they advocate on behalf of medical students. So sort of sitting atop of that, of course, is, is Dan and, and Nemo, our president and vice president external, respectively. And they'll, you know, they'll take those policies to their discussions with politicians. Policy will inform the discussions that we have with media, with the Australian Medical Council, with MDANS, which is the peak representative body of um, medical deans in Australia. And that will be really the words in their mouths that, that they use to advocate on our, on our behalf as medical students. I'm about to sewer Nemo a little bit here, uh, but genuine question, how much does Nemo do? Because I, I message her quite a lot and she's always, she's always available for a chat. Look, Nemo has an extraordinary capacity to look busy uh, without doing very much. No, that's, uh, that's not true at all. Nemo is um, one of the things that we're extremely lucky with, uh, with Nemo this year is that she's decided to take a year to study a Master of Public Health uh, to really throw herself into this role. Um, and so really, I think when, when Nemo says that she's available, it's because she's made the decision to probably put something else aside, most, most probably her MPH to, uh, to do some AMSA work. But she's certainly, certainly a, a, a ball of activity that I, that I can't keep up with sometimes. A lot busier than any, any of us, unfortunately. Yeah, she's, she's most certainly, I think I've referred to her a few times as Isabel, get shit done, Nemo. Um, uh, especially towards the beginning of creating the podcast, I didn't have a clue about anything. So I just sent her like a 15 dot points of questions I had in Slack. And within a couple of hours, she'd have these massive responses for me. Yeah. The, the master of public health is something that I've heard about a lot in AMSA. It seems to be the go-to thing for quite a few of you guys. Could you explain to me what is a master of public health in terms of like, why would you do it? What do you plan to do with it? And I guess on that line of thinking, where do you plan on being sort of five and 10 years? A master of public health is really whatever you want it to be. We, we um, love those vague answers. <laughs> <laughs> and where I'll be in five years is where I, wherever I want to be. Um, no, it's a, a master of public health is a very broad kind of degree. Really the thing that unites it is an acceptance or acknowledgement of the fact that health issues are best addressed by a, a public approach, and that's one that's really grounded in the communities where the health issue occurs and looking at the ways that those communities can really support improvements in health. And so some people will study, you know, even in my group of people who did the MPH with me, 
Some people were studying sort of the interaction between health and gender. Others were looking at children. Others were looking at health economics. You know, it's a very broad range of things. You can do epidemiology and biostatistics, which I'm sure has become more popular this year. Um, for my own part, I took my MPH mainly in health economics and with a little bit of mental health alongside, really with a view to understanding how the health system is constructed and how we support health systems that make uh, good decisions with patients and good decisions about how to use limited resources really carefully that really actually supports everyone's health. And so in terms of where that will lead me in five years, I think is really, really difficult to say. I think there are maybe two types of people who go in to do their MPH. There are people who do it because they have a really fixed interest in public health and they want to pursue that interest. And so they've got a really clear plan of how they use their MPH, what sort of subjects they will do to support their skills, and then they'll take those skills directly into the, into the workforce. I think the other group of people who do MPH are people who know that they are interested in public health but don't really understand the various opportunities that are available in public health. And so try to be a little bit more general with it. I think I probably fit into that second group. I'm not entirely sure what I'd like to do, but I know that I will have a very dull and unsatisfying career if I'm not in some way, shape or form involved in, in public health or, or public policy. I think one of the things actually that some people will do out of an MPH as well, that's specific to, to medical students and, and future doctors uh, that might be a, a sort of by way of advice is that some doctors will train as a public health physician. They are the tip-top experts in public health. And to do that training, you actually have to have taken a Master of Public Health. And you have to have fulfilled certain prerequisite subjects. I must say, since my MPH, that's something I've considered a lot more doing that training. But of course, during my MPH, I think very arrogantly, I was like, no, I'll never do that. So I won't do the prerequisites. And I need to go back and do the prerequisites if I want to train um, as a public health physician. So there's a, a word of warning to anyone considering an MPH. If you can do the prerequisites, just do them. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how does it work in terms of doing your MD and MPH? Are you doing them at the same time or do you take a year off to do your MPH or how does it go usually? There are lots of different MPH programs in Australia. Uh, a very common one that people do is the Master of Public Health through the University of Sydney, which as I understand and I encourage listeners to fact check. Uh, I understand is a, a one-year course that's delivered online. And so a lot of people actually do it as a junior doctor. And so they'll do it during their internship where you don't have much sort of external study to do. And perhaps in HMO2, HMO3 as a part-time commitment. In our case, we're very lucky at the University of Melbourne to have a combined MD-MPH program. And so we are able to do the University of Melbourne's MPH in one year as opposed to two years uh, because of some creative cross-crediting of subjects um, between the MD and the MPH. But effectively how it works is we actually step out of the MD for a year. We go you know, technically on a leave of absence, we do our MPH and then we step back into the MD, which I think comes with its benefits and its problems. Benefits mainly being that you actually really get to throw yourself into the Master of Public Health and it gives you a lot of free time to go and explore those interests sort of outside of the academic context. But the major issue being as, you know, as I face my exit exam on Tuesday, losing every single little bit of knowledge of medicine that you have, which is definitely a bit of a challenge. <laughs> no, that's very interesting. So why 
because I know a couple of people that do an MD PhD. Mm. Uh, from what you know, why would someone choose an MPH over an MD PhD? Is it just sort of if, so? Say you were to do wanting to do public health, are there many of those sort of people that are doing a PhD instead of an MPH, or are they all sort of going down that track? I think the main reason to choose an MPH over a PhD is because you value sleep and your sanity. <laughs> the MPH is a much is a much less intense course. And you know, jokes aside, I have enormous respect for people who do a PhD during their MD. Um, I think that shows an enormous commitment to to research, and and you know, it just boggles me that there are brilliant people who are able to balance those two things. As far as public health is concerned, I think MPH tends to be the pathway that people pursue. That's not to say that people don't go and do their PhDs later. Um, but as far as I understand, most people would do their PhD, perhaps even as a part of their their public health training. One of the things that you really have to do a lot of during your public health training is be very active in research mm. and indeed actually be very, very active in teaching. And so in terms of the public health pathway, that's probably the best opportunity to do your PhD because you'll actually, that PhD will actually contribute to your training and there you, you can sort of, you know, kill two birds with one stone and i think that's probably the the option that people tend to take having said that though there aren't an enormous number of people who go through public health in that kind of very traditional pathway i think a lot of people find public health once they've become doctors mm. and so that yeah it's it's really hard to say i think you know horses for courses um you know if you did an md phd as a way to go into public health i'm sure that that would be a, a very successful pathway and one that would lead to a a fulfilling career in public health at the end of it, but certainly the MPH pathway seems a little less, little less intense if that's your vibe. Yeah, a bit more sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, almost, it's almost quite nice to hear for me that there are these alternative pathways. So I'm, I'm a lowly first year medical student, so I don't really know anything. Um, and I sort of always believe that it's like you go through your MD and then you sort of become a doctor and you just work forever in whatever you end up doing uh, it's quite nice to hear that there are some other routes if for some reason i'm not a big fan of cannulas or something um or if i <laughs> obviously uh, for the other reason i enjoying policy and wanting to get involved with that now this podcast is uh in many ways a recruitment propaganda uh spiel for amsa to get some more people involved in amsa especially i guess the first years this year, um, since we've not really had any in-person events, it's been, mm. from what I hear, much more difficult to get first-year engagement. So if you were to try and con someone into doing policy, what would be the sort of pros you would say? Like, what are the benefits to people to do policy? Look, Aiden, I'm not above bribes. Uh, it's been an expensive <laughs> year for me. We've had a lot of applications. We've had hundreds of applications this year. But look, I think it's been a, a well worth, I think the investment's been well worth it. Um, I think, look, in terms, of, in terms of the benefit that comes from policy, I think there are a number of benefits. I think the most obvious benefit is that you get to write a policy and the process of doing that is something that will equip you with skills that are really, really, really difficult to acquire elsewhere in medicine. I've had a lot of discussions with people recently about what else they can do to get involved in policy and found those discussions really challenging because there aren't really a lot of opportunities. So I think... Policy skills is, is really the number one thing. And I think really the reason that that's something to head for in terms of AMSA policy is because we really try and support that development. 
as you all well know, the way that I lead my teams is to really give policy authors say. You know, I really want them to take charge of the project and to feel responsible for and and ultimately in charge of the policy that they write. And I think that's a really important way to to develop your skills. I think the sort of other thing about you know skills development within AMSA policy is that most people haven't written a policy with us before on every policy team. And so you're surrounded by a lot of interested people, but people without, without those skills as well. But you also have the opportunity of engaging with people who do have those skills. And so it becomes a very well-supported environment where there isn't an expectation that you will be a policy expert straight away, but there are lots of opportunities to develop those skills really quickly because you're given that responsibility but also because there are always, you know, consistently people on teams who have those skills and also because, you know, we really put a lot of emphasis on, on giving opportunities to train policy authors and really help them develop their policy skills. I think finally as well, it's just a little bit fun. Like you get to meet people from around the country, particularly during COVID, that's a, a really a boon, I think, to our policy authors. And, you know, you, at the end of it, you get to go to council and present your policy, which is a really sort of nerve wracking but exciting thing to do. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, that's a really fun process. Yeah, no, I'm definitely a big fan of the the model of policy creation, especially regarding new authors, sort of just getting exposed to people that have had experience with policy. As somebody who's, but sort of still feels like they don't know anything. When I was at council, because council two was my first council, I felt like an absolute idiot. Um, I never felt the whole imposter syndrome too much until I went to council and I was like, Fuck, I'm an idiot compared to these people. So because of that, I decided to sign up for policy. Um, I'm off to online NLDS in a few weeks as well. Um, oh, wow. But outside of that, for those sort of listening that are not currently writing policy and not doing other things, what are some ways that you can sort of improve those policy skills just at home? Yeah, one of the really one of the really cool things that a lot of universities are doing now is recruiting policy review teams. And they effectively what these are is when our policies go out to review to medical students, the AMSA rep at the university will recruit a team of people to read and then comment on the policies. And so I've noticed this is something that's happened only this year and I've noticed that a lot of the people who've come through those teams have a lot of really good policy skills. They get a bit of policy training at the start, particularly around what good policy looks like, how to review policy, and how to understand you know, how policy functions. And then they have, more importantly, a real practical involvement in policy by really thoroughly reading through a policy and then making comments on them, uh, making comments on them. And so that's been, that's been huge for us because it means that it improves our policy tenfold because we have all these intelligent people around the country actually reading them for us. But in terms of the individuals doing it, it gives really, really valuable exposure to policy and really helps accelerate the development of your skills. I think the other thing as well, to be a little bit strategic about it, when we review applications for policy, it's something that's looked upon really favorably. I think in part because it shows that you actually do have a really demonstrable issue, interest in policy. Mm. It shows that you have a really demonstrable interest in policy, but it also it also shows a it, it also comes through in the, the actual applications themselves. Often you can see that the applicants are a lot more confident 
They have a lot more knowledge about how policy functions and that really comes through in the way that they talk about policy on their application. So we've been really lucky actually at Council 3 to have a number of people come through that pathway. And I think, you know, they enter the teams a lot more confident, a lot more skilled than um, than people who haven't had that opportunity. So talk to your AMSA rep. They will happen during review period, which is coming up in the, in the 24th of August. And so getting onto those policies and having a review is a really good way. Otherwise, just keeping up with the news, I think, is a really important way to understand how policy functions on a national level and that those skills translate really well into AMSA, but those skills also translate really well into making you a better doctor and a more complete clinician if you understand sort of the context that you're practicing your medicine in. And on that note, <laughs> Nemo's kind of sued you again with this next one, another hospital pass. Classic. So she, she's asking, um, and I, I, think, I think it's an important question to ask as well. Like you said, it is very important for um, doctors to be knowledgeable about what's going on in the world. You can't just learn, you know, all of your clinical science and then mm. think you know everything. Like you, you need to have that, that context to be able to apply things in. How can someone learn more about politics and policy? Um, and she has written, and policy for leisure, brackets like he does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah. Um, just trying to find the words that don't make me sound like a complete loser. How do I make this is sound it on cool? Your, is it on your Tinder bio? I have to ask. Policy for leisure, reading policy for leisure. I I have a I have a very good off mic story about this. Um, <laughs> um, we'll save that one for later then. Eh? We'll, we'll save that one for later. That, we'll, I'll drop that one out for listeners if you if you want to know. Um, come and have a chat with me. But look, certainly I you know I have a you know every night before bed, obviously sit down with my policy book and, and have a little bit of a read just to you know have some happy thoughts before. Uh, before heading off to sleep. Um, I think in terms of keeping up with things, I think it takes a really long time is the reality. Uh, so I, the reason that I actually started reading the news was because I was doing, which is a total wank, but I was doing a public speaking competition and my teacher forced me to read the news because part of that competition was an impromptu section and you had to appear as though you knew things in the impromptu section so as not to appear as a fraud. And so I initially remember finding that really complex because I didn't understand the things that they were talking about in the news. But after a while, you find that some of it starts to think, sink in and you begin to understand more and more of the context. And that really makes it more valuable to you in, in sort of reading things. So I think really the important way of keeping on top of sort of policy issues is to have a quick scroll of, of what's happening in the news each day. Um, in Victoria, I really like The Age because they will often write pieces that are a little bit more thoughtful and, you know, a little bit less. Here are some people who did a terrible thing. Let's, you know, Australia says fuck you like the, the Herald Sun might do um, <laughs> or the Courier Mail up there. Um, so, yeah, look, I think reading your, your favourite paper, the conversation is also very good. They actually dive pretty deep yeah. into policy with policy experts. Um, obviously a little bit harder to get your head around the conversation sometimes, but um, they are written for an audience that is about explanation as opposed to writing for a an expert audience. So I think just having a bit of a read of those is actually a really good way to keep up with these things. And that's really how I do it, to be perfectly honest. I must mm. confess, though, that 
more recently, I've been doing less of that. I think a lot of people are probably disengaging with the news a little bit because of COVID um, and you know, really diving into the policy issues surrounding COVID is a bit of a, um, you know, is really fascinating, but also, you know, has such a profound impact on, on individuals and the way that they live their lives. Like it's very unusual actually reading about policy and understanding that those policy decisions have an extremely direct and very rapid impact on your life. So, you know, for example, if you're in Victoria and you're reading about the prospect of a stage four lockdown, then you're not just reading about that in sort of abstract terms in terms of what it would achieve for COVID. You're reading that in terms of, wow, will I be able to see my friends? Will they kick us off placement? Which is, yeah, certainly certainly heightens the <laughs> heightens the fun. <laughs> Indeed. Now, this is sort of going off on a bit of a tangent and sort of grasping at the hypotheticals here. Um, but just from your, your thoughts, um, I think everybody and their dog has had a mate with someone or in Queensland at the bar, uh, but on, in Melbourne, I guess, on Zoom with your mate about what went wrong with COVID. Like, do, you, do you have any theories or um, is there a better way things could have been approached? And do you think the, the enough is being done now sort of thing? Like, what are your thoughts? I think... I'm going to fall into the trap that I keep whinging about, which is to pretend to be an armchair epidemiologist. Um, <laughs> I think, I think it's, I think it's extremely complex. Um, there have been a lot of discussions around some of the policy failures that have led to, led to the outbreak that we've experienced. And so, in Victoria, those policy failures have been most concentrated in aged care. Um, Effectively, the policy failure has been a system that just doesn't have the right level of training or staffing or safety embedded in its culture that could prevent the spread of COVID. And so we've seen that have absolutely disastrous effects with enormous outbreaks in aged care. That's been a longitudinal failure that was acknowledged in the Royal Commission into Aged Care, I think, last year. Um, but that's a failure that hasn't been addressed. And I think the other policy failure that's had a lot of discussion in Victoria is hotel quarantine and the fact that one of the security guards thought that he'd supplement his income by uh, sleeping with some of the guests and then of course contracted COVID, spread it who'd around a bit of money, yes, and then yeah, who'd have thunk it? Um, and then sort of done that a little bit. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of our government because of that. Um, and some of that crit criticism is warranted. I think other criticism isn't. Certainly the use of private security contractors has been a particular focus of criticism in Victoria. Having said that, private security contractors were also used in Western Australia, which has had the best COVID response. And so I think one of the strands to this that doesn't really get talked about is that, you know, the spread of an infectious disease is a stochastic process. And so as much as these are individual policy failures, every single jurisdiction that has combated COVID has had very significant policy failures. What's gone wrong in Victoria is policy failure on a background of really bad luck. Um, and I think that's something that's probably underappreciated in this discussion. I mean, by way of comparison, obviously Sydney had the Ruby Princess dock and spread COVID like wildfire throughout the rest of the country. Yeah. But that was sustainable. But, you know, the reality of that is that that policy failure could have spelled exactly the same outcome as it did in Victoria it was just probably some good fortune that it didn't. And so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a big thing in it. Um, in terms of 
future, very, very, very difficult to predict. There are some very, very, very early signs now that Victoria's adoption of masks has depressed the R0 to around one or perhaps even below one. So our average has started to go down a little bit. We've seen that happen previously and then led into a, a new record day. So I think we should interpret that with enormous caution. Mm. Um, but I think it's reasonable to suggest that with more stringent lockdown, we should see numbers start to fall. I think the big questions that remain are whether or not those numbers will fall sufficiently in six weeks to begin to open up again. And I think the other important question is whether COVID becomes embedded in certain industries. And so the R0 in the community might be well below one, but the R0 in healthcare is probably still above one. And if it remains above one, it will still spread among healthcare workers. And so I think you know, there is a capacity for, for viruses to become endemic in a, a stratum or a pocket of society or a geographical area. And I'm worried that potentially healthcare in particular, because lockdown doesn't affect healthcare really. Um, I'm concerned that potentially that could become endemic there, but that's a, that's very much me being an armchair epidemiologist. So I would take everything I've said with half a grain of salt. I'll grab a nice handful mm-hmm. myself, but no, very interesting mm-hmm. insight. Um, you, the um, fact that, like you say, healthcare doesn't really, can't really have a lockdown. I hadn't really considered that. Um, so tagging on to all of that, what has AMPS's role been in the COVID response and how much from your perspective has COVID affected medical students? I think it's changed nothing at all. Um, <laughs> look, the in terms of, in terms of our response, there was a very stressful period. And I, all of us remember it really well, those few weeks where every day something new and extremely dramatic was happening. You know, we went from, no, 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 there's no problem, go to the footy, to, oh, my God, the whole place is going to burn down. We're in, you know, lockdown. Don't leave, you know, don't leave your bubble. And I think during that period for AMSA, that was extremely challenging. So there were some very significant decisions that needed to be made about medical students, namely whether they were allowed to continue placement, whether medical students should be conscripted into health services. I mean, we were facing potential collapse of our healthcare system in March. And so one of the discussions that AMSA was involved in was about whether or not medical students, particularly final year medical students, should be compelled to be involved as they were in some countries. And certainly I had friends, for example, in the UK who were graduated early um, to contribute to the COVID response. And, you know, then lots of other things as well about, you know, does, do this year's medical students graduate because they can't do placement? What happens Mm. to international students who are stuck overseas? Many of these sorts of discussions are still ongoing, particularly in the context of a new, of a new wave in Victoria. But in those few weeks, you know, Dan and Nemo in particular were under enormous pressure to make very consequential decisions about how to represent medical students, unfortunately, without really any policy. And so from, from my perspective, one of the things that we did at Council One was to write up a policy very quickly about how we'd sort of been talking about things and to bring that to Council to, uh, to, to discuss and to debate what would be in that policy. And that really, that document has led the kind of decision-making that we've made, which is to be 
cautious in allowing medical students onto placement, but to really try and protect their safety as the number one priority whilst balancing the, the need to graduate, which is an extremely fraught and, and complicated policy issue. That sounds beyond intense. I kind of miss, I wish I had made it to Council 1. I unfortunately didn't know about AMSA back then. But yeah. <laughs> um, that's really interesting. So it, how, did the, how did Council 1 go in terms of, the, one thing I did want to bring up sort of by way of enticing people into AMSA is the fact that there's generally a bit of spice, as AMSA likes to say, <laughs> the AMSA lingo, um, in Council. Was there much spice in Council 1? Not for the COVID response, not for the COVID response, which I think probably reflected what was happening in the community. There were some really, really, really consequential decisions. There were some really, really consequential decisions made by Dan and Nemo about how to represent medical students on the issue of COVID. And those decisions could have been potentially controversial, not because they were the wrong decision, but because the 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 complexity and the you know really the the wickedness of of covid as a as a policy issue made it so that there was not really a right answer and so i think my expectation going into council 1 is that people would have very strong views about how medical students should be represented and may have strong views about how medical students had been represented i think what actually happened at council 1 was enormous unity I think that the discussions that I was having with other medical students during that time was enormously complementary of what AMSA had done and the decisions that we made uh, to represent medical students on COVID. And the actual policy discussion itself was largely very supportive. I mean, there were some changes made to the policy and that was right and appropriate and good. That's why we wanted to have that discussion. But there was no sense of spice or or sort of self-aggrandizement or anything like that and that it was a very it was a really interesting unifying moment i think that has parallels to what's happened in the community i mean we've seen in western australia for example the labor premier there has a 90 percent approval rating and that's in a state that often votes often votes to the to the right of the political spectrum mm. so that kind of unity behind you know not to sort of make parallels between dan and the leader of a state um, certainly Dan is uh, in the Australian ecosystem much more important than Mark McGowan. Um, but the, um, the, the, the degree of sort of let's just get on with this, let's sort of band together has been something that's been really, really notable. And I think actually we're seeing the reverse of that at the moment. For example, there have been a couple of pot shots made at the Victorian government by federal government ministers, most recently the treasurer, and the way that they've been responded to in the media is actually quite sort of, oh, wow, you, you're doing that again. And so I think that reflects this sort of genuine unity that people have had behind a COVID response. And that's something that we saw play out at Council One. So lovers of spice like yourself, uh, very much cocktail, a butter chicken council, not a, uh, not a spicy madras. Oh, I guess it was made up for with all of the, the memes that came out of it. Some of my favourites have been the whole... Um, what we need to do to fight COVID is build a wall around Victoria and make the Victorians pay for it. That's a personal favourite. Honestly, I think there are plenty of Victorians that would gladly be separated from the rest of the country. Our little, <laughs> you know, we are the People's Republic of Victoria. If you listen to the, listen to most people at this point, uh, so <laughs> we're happy to be separated. We're you know we're happy to stick it with our lattes and our you know better dress sense and our 
you know, the better football code. So I think oh, we're, okay. right. we, we're getting into the real spice now. And Trav, this is, this is really, more. yeah, I'm happy to take This it. is really why I wanted to bring you on today. Um, to really yeah, right, um, point out the error in your ways, in your dedication to the false code of AFL. Look, I think, you know, look, I, I don't know about you, Aiden, but, you know, I, I'm, I'd see myself as a bit of a people's person. I'm comfortable with all, all people of all classes. I don't think that we need to import a posh boys, you know, private school game from England uh, to play in Australia. I think we've got our own game that's got Indigenous heritage, has been played by all stratas of society in Victoria with enormous success. We don't need to worry about rugby. Uh, well, I don't have a good response to that, so we're just going to have to cut that out of the podcast, I think. <laughs> now, to to top off the podcast, I think uh, I've chatted to a couple of people about what they wanted to see uh, when I chatted to the infamous Travis Lyons on the podcast. And <laughs> the, oh the common theme was bringing up We'll have to do a language profanity uh, for this. Get the bleeps going. Um, no. Let's talk about scope, Travis. Talk about scope. Fuck off. <laughs> we got to do it. Got to happen. All right, Aiden. Let's let's talk about it. The first thing I want to know is every single name who has suggested scope as a, I can't even say the word. Every single name who has suggested scope as a as a topic of conversation here. I look up. There will be. I'm not one to hold grudges, but suffice to say that there will be retribution. There will be consequences. I'll, I'll DM that list to you later. Thanks, mate. I appreciate that. Anytime. Anytime. Um, scope. Uh, look, scope's a really important discussion, actually. So I last year, I was the Global Health Policy Officer, and traditionally discussions about scope focus more on global health policies than they do on other policies because... I think there is general consensus within AMSA that AMSA should have a say about about issues that are very directly applicable to medical students, such as medical school training and, and stuff like that. But there is there isn't so much consensus as a large majority who believe that AMSA policy should also reflect on issues that affect not only medical students but the communities that we live in, which tends to be where global health policy sits. So. One of the real challenges of doing that job and one of the real challenges that guys had doing that job this year is to make the case for why medical students should have a voice on climate change, for example, or on refugees or on any number of issues that affect the communities that we live in and and vulnerable groups within our communities. I think there has been a, a long-standing joke that scope is a really uncomfortable and annoying discussion. Um... And that's, you know, as, as all good jokes do it, it's based in a lot of truth. But one of the things that I've been really keen on is actually to open up that discussion and have the discussion about scope because I think it actually reflects really important information about what medical students believe. If medical students don't want us to have a view about whether the government should buy everyone R.M. Williams, then I think that we should follow the voice of medical students. Ultimately, that's our <laughs> responsibility. And so... One of the things that I've implemented at Council 2 that will hopefully be a bigger feature of Council 3 and then subsequent subsequent councils beyond that is to have AMSA reps vote on the list of policies that are written for the next council. And really the purpose of having them do that is to let people have the scope argument before the policies are written. It's a lot safer. You're not criticising someone's work. There's not all this sort of ego and and, hard work sort of bundled up in the policy. Um, and that's just accepting, you know, who we all are as humans. 
And so if we have that discussion before that, we can have it really flesh it out. We can really understand from the AMSA reps what they want AMSA to be talking about. And hopefully in four years time, when we've gone through all of the base, we'll have a really clear idea about what AMSA and more particularly the members that it represents want to see in terms of scope. So I, you know, as much as I joke, I can bring it on. I think it's a really important discussion. Yeah. And I don't begrudge having it. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad I'm not going to be blacklisted for this. What I may be blacklisted for is the following statement. So while the AMSA policy based, um, as you're saying, should be representative of the medical students of Australia's views, um, the mm -hmm. question is, should we have a say on those sort of things? Like, or are we in a position to have any input on the, um, I guess, climate change discussion or some of the other bigger ones? One of the brilliant things about the policy officer role, Aiden, is that I, I don't have a view on anything. Um, <laughs> I, I, I genuinely don't believe a single thing. Um, no, so to jokes aside, I try not to take my own views to the policy base. And so that's really why I've put, because previously, so previously the decisions about scope have been made by the policy officer in isolation. And they may, they may seek advice from AMSA reps, they may seek advice from people involved in advocacy in AMSA, but ultimately the decision is made by the policy officer about what policies be written. Yeah. I think that gives me far too much scope uh, to make, make decisions according to my own beliefs. And I don't think that I am the archetypal medical student who should constitute the voice of Australian medical school. <laughs> very, very, very bad answer. Um, and so handing that over to the AMSA reps is really about leaving it to them to, to decide whether we should have a voice in the debate about climate change, for example, or whether we should have a voice in the debate about refugees. I think fairly consistently where we have had those discussions, the voice of Australian medical students has been pretty resounding yes. Um, but, you know, I think, for example, there have been nuances to that that haven't been resolved. So our climate change and health policy came up at Council 1. A number of universities decided to vote against. And my understanding is that they made that decision because they felt that whilst AMSA should have a a view on climate change it shouldn't have a view on whether or not fossil fuels are banned or how to restructure the economy according mm. to a more climate friendly economy um i you know obviously i have personal views about that but those personal views are irrelevant to my work and so giving the space and opportunity for amsa's members and more broadly australian medical students to contribute their thoughts to that and being guided by that really is my job at the end of the day yeah, no, that's that's fair enough. Uh, that was that was a good answer. <laughs> um, that was a bit of council one spice for you, actually. Hey, what's that? You got some spice for me? That was a bit of council one spice. That was a little bit spicy. The climate change discussion. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. Was that regarding scope? Was that what the spice was? Um, only one university spoke against it, uh, but three voted against it, and I think. People were a little bit taken aback about that. But my understanding was that the three, um, yeah, my understanding was that the three were were pretty unanimous on this idea that 
whilst the policy was good and it was really important that AMSA have something to say about climate change, they felt that some of the provisions in the policy stepped outside of where AMSA should have a should have a view. UQ yeah, okay. was actually one of them. Um, yeah. and, so both of us were. <laughs> so on the on the note of like passing policies, so obviously, mm. what is the the ruling for what, what number of votes is required for a policy to pass? It's very convoluted, but effectively it's two thirds of the votes. And so roughly you could say two thirds of AMSA reps, but each individual AMSA rep has a different number of votes. So as a really rough rule of thumb, if you go to a bigger university, then your AMSA rep will have more votes. And so the AMSA rep for UniMelb, for example, has more votes than the AMSA rep for UTAS, which is obviously a much smaller uni. And so we need two thirds of those votes for the policy to pass. Most policies will pass or indeed fail without, you know, quite unambiguously. Um, but occasionally we have to bust something out called the matrix, which is this super special spreadsheet that counts the votes. The matrix. That sounds very cool. <laughs> it, is, it is extremely cool. I've, I've had to run it once in my life and it was probably the best thing I've ever done. Blissful is how I describe it. Uh, I, I aspire to one day have my hands around the matrix. <laughs> So one thing that I was, I was having a chat um, to somebody over coffee about AMSA and the fact that most policies do get passed and somebody brought up the, the sentiment that there are lots of policies being produced and seemingly all of them passing. Would you mm. mind commenting on the, the, the culture behind sort of passing or failing policies and having sort of most of them pass or most of them fail, I guess. Because I think apparently a few years ago, a lot more policies were failing. Hmm. Um, I wasn't around AMSA when policies routinely failed. In fact, I'm relatively new to AMSA. I've only been involved for the last couple of years. Um, the my My personal view is that it is not a good thing to have all policies pass. And so this year, any policy that has gone to a vote has passed. And I personally see that as a, as a failure to, to empower council to sort of flex its muscles sometimes. I think, you know, assuming that every, you know, when every policy passes, it assumes that every policy is written to a really fantastic standard. And that might be true. But I suspect that what it actually reflects is a reluctance to, to, I guess, be nasty to the policy authors, you know, knowing that policies do take a lot of effort and that a lot of work goes into them. But the reality is that policy is extremely important. It is how we represent medical students and that can have very significant impacts. And I mean, the discussion that we just had about COVID is a good example of that. Our voice was really important in shaping that discussion. So. I think one of the things that I've tried to encourage council to do this year is to to vote according to how they want to vote, not to feel like they can't be critical or can't be robust in their criticism of policy, but of course, to do so with respect. I think one of the things that partially explains why policies have passed so successfully this year, but have been exposed to more robust criticism or feedback is that we've had a much busier review period. So previously during a review period, each policy might get about you know two or three comments on them, maybe up to 10 if they were really spicy. 
um, which really means that we're not consulting medical students properly. And so this year, and that, that's been the case for, you know, ever since review periods existed. But this year we've been very lucky, perhaps in, in part because of the time that people have due to COVID, that policies are now getting, you know, 60, 70, up to 100 comments on them. And I think that that means that AMPSA reps have been a lot more involved in the discussion around policy. And so policy actually reflects what they want to see in it um, more so than it perhaps did in the past. But yeah, personally, I'd like to see a higher failure rate of policy. Um, it's uncomfortable, it's bad for teams, and you know, but I think it's par for the course. And it also means that we're doing our due diligence. It's a sign that we're doing our due diligence for for the policies. And so, yeah, I think it's a very, whoever's raised that with you or if that's come from you, I think it's a really important point and it's one that bothers me as well. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, more, more policies failing would generate more spice. Uh, and yeah. I think that would increase my enjoyment during council. And, and, and that's what we're really after here, I think would be the general consensus of medical students just having aid and happy, uh, giggling away in the background. I, look, I think so. And look, you know, I... All, all throughout my involvement with AMSA. So I, I've been, my, my first council that I went to was only about two years ago. And that's the only council I've gone to where I wasn't a policy officer. And, you know, I, I did my bit. We, we, you know, I think it was the last policy that failed was at that council. And uh, a couple of us teamed up and were vocal in that discussion. So we delivered the spice. Um, things about my transition into policy officer that the last thing I did on policy as a as a general member was cause a lot of trouble uh, but you know, my commitment to the spice is such that that was that needed to be done that's incredible we we do love the commitment to the spice um, <laughs> on that note um we've been chatting for quite a while mm. I will let you go but thank you very much for coming and have a chat with me I've definitely learned a lot and I think this has been uh, definitely one of the more enjoyable podcasts for people playing along at home. God, God help anyone who's made it to the end. Uh, speak to them. <laughs> you, you, frankly, if you're still listening at this point, you need a life. Um, no, that's not true. It's been, it's been good fun, Aiden. I've had uh, had a really good chat with you and, and really enjoyed it. All the best with the podcast. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I think to top this off, everyone listening at home should go. Uh, get some Shalong Bao and we'll be doing the same. Yep. Head off to Yamcha. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in to Answers Ampule Podcast, where we discuss the things you don't talk about in med school. If you'd like to get involved with policy, follow Amsa on Facebook or Instagram for cool outs and further information. If you'd like to have a chat to the man himself, Travis can be contacted on travis.lines at amsa.org.au. If you have any feedback for the podcast or ideas of topics or guests you'd like to see in the future, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me by email on podcast at amsa.org.au. The views, information or opinions expressed during the AMSA Amphil series do not necessarily represent those of the Australian Medical Student Association.